Welcome, and thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. Get ready for a challenging sermon from First Pres Assistant Pastor Steve Page. Today, he'll preach from Amos. As he describes the cultural situation then, see how it compares to what we see today. Well, aloha, everyone. Again, if you missed my uh, intro from the beginning, my name is Steve Page, one of the pastors here on staff, and it's my honor to bring the Word of God to you today. But before I read the scriptures for today, I want to give us context so they're a little more comprehensible there. Um, This takes place, (coughs) excuse me, I got my shots. Don't freak out with that. Um, King Solomon uh, of Israel died at around 930 BC, and after he died, there was like a wrestling match, who's going to lead Israel, and so what ended up happening is that the country split in two, and the southern kingdom was called Judah, and the northern kingdom uh, kept the name Israel. And now 150 years later, around 760 BC, the northern portion was ruled by a very successful military leader named Jeroboam II. And he extended Israel's territory, and he was able to generate a lot of wealth. But all that success, all that wealth, all that extension led to all kinds of social problems for the common Israelite. And it is into this environment, a guy from that southern kingdom, from the kingdom of Judah, came and preached to the leaders of the northern kingdom. And that guy's name was Amos, and he did not mince words. So if you're able, please stand as I read the word of God. Starting uh, in Amos chapter 7, starting in verse 7, and it goes like this. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? He said, I see a plumb line. Then the Lord said, see, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will never again pass them by. In the high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. Bethel was one of the main worship centers in the northern kingdom. Sent to King Jeroboam of Israel saying, Amos has conspired against you at the very center of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos had said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go away into exile from his, from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah. Go earn your bread there, prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered Amaziah, look, I'm no prophet nor a prophet's son. But I was a herdsman, and I took care of sycamore fig trees. And the Lord took me from uh, from following the flock, and he said, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I'm going to begin today by sharing a story about uh, an incident with my dad. Um, when I was young, my dad worked in construction, and, he, and he, for many years he worked as what they, what they call on a job, a superintendent of construction. That meant he was the chief guy on a construction site. And a lot of summers, as a teenager and as a college student, I'd work with him on these jobs. Well, one time, uh, the Masons, the guys who build brick walls or you know, cement walls, the Masons built this big 10-foot wall. Like it was like 20 feet long or something. It was really a big wall of cement block. And at the end of the day, my dad's like, yeah, I'm not sure that's right. So he takes out a plumb line, and if you don't know what a plumb line is, this is a plumb line. It's a plumb bob, and you hold a string to it, 
and he held it up against the wall. And you know what? That wall was out of kilter. And he told all the masons, you got to tear down that wall and rebuild it, the whole thing. Well, I don't know if you've ever been to a construction site in Jersey, but the, <laughs> but the foreman on that site was no happy camper. And the language that came out of his mouth could curl your hair. And uh, my father just said, you got to take it down. He showed him how far off it was, and, and, and that was that. Well, in the end, after some harsh words, they did tear it down. You see, when the wall is 10 foot high, it can only be off by a half an inch. It can only be off kilter about a half inch. And, and if it's more than that, it has to be redone. And why is that? Because a wall out of kilter, out of plumb, creates danger. Because now it cannot do what it was designed to do. And as a result, people will get hurt. People can get crushed. And I want you to think about that as we go along and read a lot out of the book of Amos. When the wall is out of kilter, people get hurt. Now here's the thing, getting out of kilter is a very gradual process. It's often unnoticeable. It's not like when the Masons put up a, a row of block and they put up the second row. You know, they didn't notice it was quite off and it just kept on going even though it was off. But when that thing is tilted beyond repair, it has to come down. And as we just read, this is kind of what happened there in 8th century BC. The kingdom, the wall, was too crooked, too rebellious, too perverse, too to warrant any kind of pardon or relief, uh, relief so it had to be reconstructed. Now, as we reflect on Israel in that time, I want us to reflect on our time and to really open our souls, because I'm going to, this is a trigger warning. This is going to be one of those heavy-duty messages, straight up. But I want us to even now begin to open our souls to what God might be saying to us personally and us collectively as a community of, of God's people about our own walls, if they're plumb or off kilter. Now, <laughs> excuse me, before I get to the specifics of why the chosen people of God had to be totally rebuilt, I want to reflect on a question that gets often overlooked when we talk about prophets. Why in the world do we need prophets? Why? You know, I mean, my gosh, why, why isn't having priests and teachers of the Bible and worship services and government leaders who share uh, the faith of the people enough? Why do you need this extra office, this extra voice of the prophet? Well, there are lots of reasons. I'm just going to talk about one reason. It's because it's very easy to have cataracts of the soul. You know, a number, number of months ago, I had my eyes examined. I know what you're thinking, Steve, you should have had your head examined. But that is for another sermon. But I had my eyes examined, and, my, and the eye doctor and I got in this conversation about cataracts. So I went home online, I looked up this whole issue about cataracts, and, and I found this. A cataract is the clouding, the clouding of vision that develops slowly in the lens of the eye. And what it does, it obstructs light from getting into the eye properly. And as a result, things don't look clear. Moreover, uh, contrast sensitivity is also lost. That is, differentiating this from that, this color from that color, whatever, is more difficult. And of course, without treatment, you can go blind. Now, this is not a bad description of what can happen to my soul. You see, because of the constant flow of polarizing politics and one-sided newscasts and, and algorithms that guide all the devices I look, like to f uh, look at to find information, and because of our human proclivity towards bias, you know, confirmation bias and just plain sin, it becomes really easy to form cataracts on our souls. Or to put it this way, 
The contrast between or differentiating between the way of the world and the way of God or differentiating between the way of the culture or the way of God and especially differentiating between the way of political ideologies and the way of God look less distinct. And as distinction slowly and even imperceptibly fades, we can easily lose sight of God's standards for goodness and values and morality and justice. And this can happen, by the way, to the most well-meaning and sweetest kind of Christians you've ever met. You know, when I lived in Thailand as a missionary, I, I lived up country in central Thailand with a lot of poor farmers. And one of the biggest open secrets during the time I was in Thailand is, is uh, during election season, politicians would get all these pickup trucks, put bags of money in them, drive out to the provinces where all the poor people live, pull into the farming area to these small towns and villages, get the big blaring announcement about what candidate is there to advertise his uh, uh, election there. And um, then they would stand, they'd gather all these people, right? And, and, and then they would stand at the end of the truck and they would just hand out money. And Thai money was called baht, that's their currency, it's called baht. And they'd give out 100 and 200 and 300, sometimes 400 baht to buy the votes of the poor people. Uh, that's like one day's pay, two days paid, three days paid, four days paid. Very tempting, right? <clears throat> so, so this is what would happen. Now, you would think that with all that is written in the Bible about not taking bribes, about living with integrity, etc., you would think Christians would have certainly avoid and stay away from such things. Well, one day at church, several leaders of the church and I are hanging out right before church service, and their conversation turned to politics. And of course, they started talking about to each other. They started asking each other this question about, so how much did you get? How much did you get? Oh, I got 200. I got 300. Oh, man, I got 400. And I'm like, wait a minute. Did I hear that right? Is my tie rusty? Did I, did I hear you? Just, and I had to clarify, did you guys just take a bribe for votes? And they look at me without, without a hint of impropriety in their thought. They go, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like, now look, again, you know, if you meet these people, they are the kindest people. They had such a deep faith in God. In fact, they believed in God in an area that was very hostile to the ways of God. They loved him, okay? But their cultural values, their cultural ways of doing things clouded their vision to God's standards, and they could not make a distinction between Thai culture and God's standard. And as a result, something like bribery came to be seen as normal, normal conversation before you come. I'm sure that's what you guys talked about before you came in. So who, what bribe money did you get today, right? You know, but that's what it was. But seriously, have you ever reflected? Have you ever reflected and prayed about your normal? Have you prayed and reflected about your normal about spending your money? You're normal about the way you express anger. You're normal about your sexual life. You're normal about the way you view the marginalized, the poor, the, the, the foreigner, the immigrant, etc. See, bottom line, the, the power of cultural cataracts grows easily on the soul, and that's why we need prophets, because prophets tend to really clear out the cataracts of our soul. Amen? Which is no small issue, because when God's standards get distorted... It not only becomes easy to take a bribe, but it also becomes easy to start to bend the laws of business. It starts easy to denigrate and demean others who are not like us, who, who are we disagree with. It becomes easy to assign honor and dignity only to a certain kind of group of folks. 
Now, th this, this may help to learn more of some of the distortions going on in northern Israel to see what I mean. See, again, during this time around 760 BC, the northern kingdom experienced, experienced great political strength, national stability, economic growth, territorial expansion. And because of such, many were buoyed by a sense of well-being, and they felt optimistic about their future. In fact, as God says to them, you think I am fully with you. That's what they thought. God must be fully with us. How can he not be? It's so awesome. Yet, in a seemingly optimistic and blessed climate, the nation was in an advanced state of social, moral, and spiritual decay and rot. Greed, exploitation, and even slavery of their own people had come to characterize a society at that time. In several chapters, God, through Amos, makes charges against Israel. I'm going to read some, and warning, part of this is really wretched. Amos chapter 2, starting in verse 6, he says this, God says this, through Amos. For three transgressions of Israel and for, Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because... They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for just a pair of sandals. They trample on the head of the poor into the dust, very graphic, into the dust of the earth, and they push the poor and afflicted out of the way because I don't want to look at you, I don't want to deal with you, I don't want to know about you. Father and son use the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down besides every altar on garments taken in pledge. Poor people would give their garments in a pledge of a debt. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Look, as you heard, fellow Israelites are being bought and sold for slippers or a pair of sandals. Pain and humiliation and exploitation and degradation was being afflicted upon the marginalized. And women were being openly sexually abused. Now when you consider all the oppression, all that oppression in light of the fact that these folks kept on worshiping the God who freed the oppressed, it makes you wonder, my gosh, how in the world could they have possibly gotten to a place of being so abusive to their own people? What contradiction could they not see it? But you know, as an American Christian, I think I do know of such contradictions. Yes, the American church has had some exceptional achievements throughout its history here, and yet it has also committed some exceptional transgressions. Think of how more than a few Christians contributed to slavery and perpetuated Jim Crow for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, or the way they ordered and led the trail of tears of Native Americans from the East Coast to the Midwest. Or, or, or how they contributed to the inequality of the sexes over the centuries. I'm talking about Christians here. Now look, let me be straight up. Over the past year, and I said, I'm really honest about this, I have frequently asked myself this question. Why? Why did it take George Floyd to open my eyes to the greater history of black people in America? Prior to his death, how many of us Christians who are not black knew much at all about Juneteenth, about the Tulsa massacre, about 40 acres and a mule, about redlining, about the corruption of the 13th Amendment, about the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, and over and more and more and more. Why did it take a black man being choked to death in the gutter in Minneapolis to begin to learn of this 
history. A history shared not just by fellow Americans, a history shared by our fellow Christians. Again, let me make it clear, I'm primarily talking about me. Because I'm a man of 60 years of age, and I have three graduate degrees. And of all that I just listed there about black history, I only knew of one, the Tulsa Massacre, before George Floyd. I mean, it really got me praying, Lord, my gosh, what else am I blind to? What else am I ignorant of from my own brothers and sisters? If I really hold a plumb line up to my soul, how far off kilter am I? Again, this is why we always need prophets, because the cataracts of hypocrisy are very easy to form on our souls, even as we worship the God who values and treasures all of humanity. Now, God's sharpest words about Israel's hypocrisy comes in Amos 5, and it goes like this, starting in verse 21. Now, hear the Lord. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You, you, you've lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, what you made for yourselves. These are extremely strong words from God about the worship of Israel. Now notice in Israel, there's plenty of worship going on. There's plenty of music. There's plenty of song. There's plenty of feasts. There's plenty of sacrifices going on. Looks like good worship on the outside. You know, burnt offerings. This is when you committed the whole animal and it was a, it, as an act of total commitment to God and, and as a way to affect atonement for sin. And grain offerings is where they, the people would return a portion of the land, a portion of what they've grown to God uh, uh, um, uh, and a, as a way of saying, without you, we are thankful for this because without you, we would starve. That's the grain offering. The fellowship offering, uh, the peace offering were, were, is where worshipers burnt parts of animal sacrifices on the altar and they would share the cooked meat with the priests, but they would also kind of get together and eat the meat with friends and family to symbolize, now get this, to symbolize their devotion to God and their communion and commitment with each other. How do you offer a peace offering that day when the events of Acts 2 is going on another day? But they did it. Plenty of worship. Plenty of good-sounding worship, and yet God hates it to the point of finding it absolutely despicable. You see, in Amos, the difference between making worship and making noise comes down to two things in this book, syncretism and justice. Let me explain syncretism. See, syncretism is when you conflate other non-biblical beliefs with God beliefs, and then you call that God, or you call it the way of God. You've got to know that syncretism isn't getting rid of God altogether. It's just entangling. It's entangling our cultural or our political desires, our political goals and values with our worship of Him. Look again at verse 26 out of chapter 5. He says, you, <clears throat> you have lifted up the shrine of your king. Notice the, the, the you pronoun here. Your idols, your God, which you made for yourselves. Notice how they conflated cultural spirituality 
with the worship of God to create a religion, to create a God of their own sculpting. The philosopher Voltaire once said, in the beginning God made man in his image. Ever since then, we've decided to return the favor. And it's kind of funny, but this is extremely serious. Because here's the thing, folks. Bottom line, we will never manifest what God wants when we change who God is. If there's nothing else you remember about today, if there's nothing else that you want to take a note about, remember that we will never manifest what God wants when we change who God is. I hear you. Look again at chapter 7, verse 13 we read earlier. When the high priest of the northern kingdom, Amaziah, speaks to Amos, he says, You, Amos, out of here, never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is God's sanctuary? No, it's the king's sanctuary, and it's a temple of God? No, it's the temple of the kingdom. Can you hear how God got entangled with the king? How sanctuaries and temples were, were, were got entangled, uh, not with of God's kingdom efforts, but what of human kingdom efforts, implying that there was political mindedness going on there as well. In our day, I want to ask you, in our day, this may seem like, oh, we never do that. But in our day, have you ever heard or have you ever seen how our faith and our God has been used for human political purposes. Do you mind when that happens? When it happens every election cycle. Or do we buy into it? I highlight all this because I think this is the great temptation of every follower of God is to entangle. To entangle God with our own desires, with our own goals for life and the things that we want to do. And when we do that, what can end up happening is that we start to give divine sanction to things that are far from God's will. Again, like some Christians saw that it was their God-given right to own slaves. It was their God-given right to take over Native American territories. Or how Christians participated in the Tulsa massacre, burning down, Christians burnt down a Christian church in Tulsa, a black Christian church, and then turned around and blamed it on the black people. And you should read some of the comments. I went online and read the comments because I was interested as a pastor. What did pastors say after that? And I read their comments that they either wrote to the paper or they gave from the pulpits, and it boggles the mind how entangled their cultural views were with God. And of course, we saw in January how Jesus and the scriptures and prayers to God and Christian symbols were co-opted to storm the Capitol building and in Christ's name enacted violence against our own country. These are just a few incidences of syncretism at its most despicable. Look, I know this is, I can tell by the silence in the room how difficult this is to process. But in a day like ours, I want my words, I want your words to be worship and not noise. And God makes it clear for that to happen. We have to get justice right. Remember again in verse 23, 24, chapter 5, take away from me the noise of your songs, but let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
You metaphorically, God is saying here, look, let justice and righteousness flow in abundance, right? Like, like, like water down a riverbed. And may it flow always, consistently, like an ever-flowing stream, and not just when it's convenient, not just when it's in the headlines to do so, okay? Because let's face it, folks, too often, if a justice issue is out of the headlines, or if it's out of your Twitter feeds or trending on Twitter, then it's out of our hearts and minds as well, isn't it? So let's take a moment to define these two very important terms in the Bible, righteousness and justice in the Old Testament. Righteousness is being rightly related to God and others because your inner life is permeated with the purposes and values and character of God. Righteousness is an ethical standard, an ethical standard that refers to treating others as the image of God with a God-given dignity they deserve so that they get to experience more of what God intended for their lives. That's righteousness. And justice is a close parallel. Justice is the expression and practical application of that righteousness with your God-imaged neighbor, Christian or not, nice guy or not. In a larger sense, justice is structuring God's goodness into the social order, giving humans their due because, not because they're Christian, but simply because they're made in the image of God. Now, I know you all know the great commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor. But when you think about it, justice really is just a natural outgrowth of love. As one professor who's a Christian put it like this, justice is what love looks like in public. Have you thought about that? You want to love your neighbor? Well, justice is what love looks like in public. I mean, that is a great idea. Now, before I, I, I emphasize repeatedly this idea of being God image, because, because it is the bedrock of biblical justice. It, it, it's the thing that establishes the inalienable right to be treated with dignity and fairness, no matter who we are, from the prince to the prisoner, still to be treated with dignity and fairness. This inviolable, God-given dignity in all humans is one of the greatest Jewish Christian contributions to the history of human civilization. It is the bedrock of our democracy. It is in our Declaration of Independence. We could not be a free people, an equal people, without this bedrock value of being God-imaged. Amen? Amen? However, you know that was coming. As Chris, uh, Christian historian Jamar Tesby has pointed out, the image of God cannot be erased, but it can be defaced. Think of how this has histor historically happened to black and brown and Asian people in America, or towards foreigners or Native Americans, or towards gay people, or Haoli's in Hawaii that had to endure, as Dan talked about the other week, kill Haoli Day. I know, again, this is, this is really pretty heavy-duty stuff. And, and, and it's one of those kinds of sermons that can easily create unnecessary guilt or defensiveness and leave one feeling overwhelmed because the issue seems so big. Where do you even start? So I'm going to give you three things you can do. Three things you can put, put you on the path of making a difference that moves us beyond guilt, that moves beyond defensiveness, that moves us beyond paralysis, and hopefully, praise God, it moves us beyond hashtag outraged. Let the healing begin. Not enough, folks, just in case you want to know. Number one, you want to make a difference? Build your awareness. 
That is increasing our knowledge and understanding of justice-related issues like racism, like domestic violence, like child abuse, like hunger, houselessness, all kinds of things. And by the way, in the issue of awareness, I also mean self-awareness. How do you self-aware of how you really feel or stand on these different things? Are you apathetic? Do you overlook and ignore such things? Do you really even care about such things? And especially, are you aware of when you are drifting from the biblical view into an ideological one as you think about and contend with justice issues? One Christian put it like this, we should not simply accept contemporary, accept contemporary issues as they have been framed by political parties, ideological tribes, or the media, because these sources are not usually analyzing them from the standard of the gospel, and the gospel is our main filter towards justice. Our, the, the gospel is the weighing device for justice in our world, and you won't get that from an ideology. For example, I've made it, a, I, I, I've made it a, 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 a habit to intentionally spend time watching and reading um, uh, and learning from black, brown, and Asian female teachers of the Bible on Right Now Media and from various podcasts. Because I, I, want, I want us Christians to learn uh, about theology of justice from beyond people that you normally learn it from. They will give us insight to move us forward in ways maybe we never thought about. And I'm telling you, even though I got two seminary degrees, I am learning so much on how to interpret and apply the Bible in today's day and age. So awareness. Number two, relationships. If you want to make a, a, a difference, we have to be intentional by moving towards those who may feel marginalized and may need to be heard. How can you move towards others simply at least to sit down and listen to their stories, be it the houseless or immigrants or Hawaiians or people of color or Native Americans or Howleys who feel like they're constant outsiders no matter how long they live here? And yes, I'm going to tell you right now, when you listen to their stories in heartache, you're going to find some things very off-putting, maybe even insulting. But can you try this? Can you try to hold someone else's pain at least for a little while before you challenge it, before you push back on it, before you correct it. Because maybe if we just hold on to it and be with it, they can begin to find some healing that they need so bad, and isn't that the greater gospel objective? So, relationships. Finally this, commitment. To commit to act in small and large ways. You know, Micah 6.8 is a great guy. He says this, God says this, He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Note that it doesn't say, what does the Lord suggest to you? You've heard of the great commandment, the great commission. This is the great requirement. And moreover, notice how we are mandated to do justice, not just to admire justice, not just to value justice, not to just believe in justice, not just to study about justice, but to do justice. So maybe spend time over the next week or two asking God, how can you orient your life towards doing justice by using your knowledge, your education, your wisdom, your skill, your money, your experience, or what have you? All right, that's a lot to take in, but I'm going to end with a story in my own life of how it draws those three things of awareness, relationship, <clears throat> and commitment. And I'm going to string in together two Proverbs here that help me along the way. 
First Proverbs 31 says this, speak out for those who cannot speak, okay? Speak out for the rights of all the destitute. Speak out, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Well, here's one way I try to enflesh that. When I went to seminary, I lived amongst a very large Laotian community, about 5,000 people in this small town. And I got to know some of their lives and some of their struggles up close and personal. And one family I visited lived in a very, very broken down apartment. And um, they had a bit of a mice problem. When I say mice problem, that was that the father killed at least a dozen or more mice each night in their apartment. And he had two small kids that he was raising there. Can you imagine what that's like? Can you be empathic towards the, that situation? So here's the thing. I said, man, Brian, you got you to gotta call the landlord. This has got to stop. And he says, no, I don't want to do that. He said, I, you know, because like, he, you know, he wasn't a full citizen yet. So he felt like, I don't want to make waves. I might risk something. And moreover, he lived for years under communism which made him very hesitant to open his mouth to people in authority. Well, that's when Proverbs 31 kicked in for me to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. So I pick up a phone and I call the landlord. And at first, the landlord, re, uh, let's say, politely refused my invitation to make a better situation. You know, he kind of talked to me like the Masons talked to my dad or Amaziah talked to, uh, to Amos. Get out of here! So then I said, without any hostility in my voice, I said, well, sir, then you'll leave me no choice, but I'm going to have to take this to higher authorities down at City Hall. And in two days, the exterminator came. Now, I tell that story not only to demonstrate about how speaking up for people who cannot speak for themselves can really change things, but also because of another proverb that we have to keep in mind as we seek to do justice, where we live, work, play, and study. Proverbs 29 says this, the righteous... Know the rights of the poor. The wicked have no understanding. Did you catch that? Do you see where your duty is? The word know there is not some mere surface understanding of something. It conveys a, having a substantive knowledge uh, of, an, of an issue. Now look, I'm not saying that I needed to go get a degree in property law in order to help this Laotian family. But I'm just saying, look, don't let ignorance, especially today in, in, in the internet age, don't let ignorance impede your efforts to help those who cannot help themselves or, or speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. And look, I'm going to be honest with you. I had to go down to City Hall. I had to do my research. I had to talk to a lot of people about tenant rights. I had to make a lot of phone calls to know the rights of the family. And to be quite honest, it took time, it took effort, and it was a bit of an inconvenience to my days. But... That knowledge gave me power, the power to bring God's justice to this little small family in this broken down apartment. You can do the same. One last thing, Micah 6 requires of us to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. Without humility or graciousness, infusing our efforts at justice, we can easily move towards vilifying people uh, that who are, in our view, uh, part of the injustices of our culture. In our culture today, we see a lot of vilifying and demonizing of people, don't we? And unfortunately, we see people losing their jobs or losing their funding or losing their reputation simply for saying or for tweeting something that doesn't align with somebody else's view of justice. 
And Micah 6 is one of those things that keeps biblical justice from descending down into the uglier side of what we call social justice. We don't need, as Christians, we don't need to shame people. We don't need to call out people. We don't need to silence people. We don't need to cancel people in our pursuit of justice. After all, I did not have to, for five minutes, demonize that landlord in order to help that family get it right. Amen? All right, finally, let's land this plane. <laughs> yeah, amen, yeah, right? <laughs> Look, I know, again, parts of this sermon are difficult to, to sit with. And I know I'm asking hard questions of all of us, uh, including myself. But that's what plumb lines do. Plumb lines make us take an accurate view of what's really happening in our lives. Look, those construction workers on my dad's job site, to them, things looked fine. But in reality, things were dangerous. As you've heard me say many times, we can't fix what we don't face and what we don't transform we will transmit if we don't transform to be just people we will continue to transmit injustice and I don't want for the church of Jesus Christ to be a transmitter of any more pain to any group of people for even one more day I want us to be a fountain a fountain of healing a fountain of hope a fountain of blessing a fountain of justice to this world because this is God's heart is it yours this morning so let me ask you where are you today what are the issues of justice that God is bringing into your life? What do you need to know to make a difference in this world, even in a small way? Who can you move towards? What relationships can you start creating? Now, what do you need to speak or do to see justice roll like a river out of your life and into the world? Now, some of us may be needing some justice, and I'm going to pray here now in a second about them. But as the worship guys come up, before they sing, I just want to pray. So just close your eyes, because I know I laid a lot out there. I know I laid a lot out there. Just close your eyes. What is God saying to you? In all honesty, are you finding yourself wanting to push back a little on some of the things I kind of laid out there quite baldly? If so, why? Lord, I pray for these people, these good people who are here to worship you, to take on your character and wear it in the world. And we know that you are God, characterized by righteousness, characterized by justice. So I pray, Lord God, that you would fill them with a greater sense of what you've called them to do and be in the world for these issues. Lord, and I know sometimes we're scared to try. I pray for courage to do it. And for those of us who are sitting here this morning who need you to act on their behalf for justice, I pray, Lord, that they would even feel it now, your presence with them, your care for them. Bring people into their life. Bring people into their life, Lord, that can help them find the justice, not only that they desire, but that you desire for them. And Lord, we do thank you, even for a tough word from Scripture, because we know that if we live it out, we will change the world for your sake. In your wonderful and loving name we pray. Amen. Is a great song to end with because it focuses how we can get it done. Not because we're so powerful or we're so wise, 
But what could stand in the way of God? And he is with us. And he's empowered us. He has filled us. What? To attend church? That's it? <laughs> now, man, it changed this world. Amen? Amen. Um, I know probably what I laid out there was pretty heavy. And, um, and it sounds maybe I'm a little pessimistic. I'm not. I, I'm not a Pollyanna optimist. I'm just a man of hope. Because this is what I believe. That I believe that, that, that God answers the prayer that we pray every Sunday in this church. Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I believe he wants to answer that all the time through you, through me, through us all. Amen? That's why I can, can speak boldly about these difficult truths of the history of the, of the Christian people because I know on the other side of those ugly truths lies a way of being that is powerful, that is world-changing, that is life-giving, that is just. <sighs> Sorry, that was a little extra. Should we have a second offering? No, no, no. <laughs> So, no, I just better give the benediction before the rocks start coming out. Um, all right, so I love talking about this with you guys. All right, so receive this blessing. May the God who calls us to do justice, who calls us to love kindness and to walk humbly with him, fill you with imagination as well as power of how you can be the person through whom his justice rolls like a river into this world. May you wear this great requirement nobly, bravely, courageously in your world where you live, work, and play. To God be all the glory and all his people said. Thank you at home for worshiping with us. God bless you. Be in peace. Aloha. God's ways, statutes, his very word is absolute. It's the plumb line that we should use to measure our own lives. If you want to catch up on or re-listen to previous services, you can find past sermons on our websites, fpchawaii.org and thevinehawaii.org. You can also find First Pres sermons on most major podcast services and on YouTube. In-person worship has resumed, but still in limited capacity. There are two live services at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. every Sunday morning. If you'd like to participate, you'll need to sign up through the website on a weekly basis. And both services will be streamed live on the church websites, fpchawaii.org and thevinehawaii.org. Continue to check your email for links to sermons, church news and updates, registration for our in-person worship, and lots more. And as always, if there's anything we can do for you, you can always reach the church through the website or just call 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you, stay safe, and thank you for listening. This sermon podcast is copyright 2021 and produced by the media ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu.